So uh, I'm going to cheat with a greeting, right? I stole off of Paul in the book of Philippians in the beginning. This is what he says, except I put Calvary Low Country where he says Philippians. He said, I'm going to say this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Calvary Chapel, Low Country, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you and in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as, is, just as it is right for me to think of you all, just because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, you all are partakers with me of grace. And so uh, it's great to be here and great to share God's word. And just to be alongside of my, my friends and, and my brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to share. So with that, let's pray in. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 tonight. Father God, I thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here and to hear from you, Lord, from your word. And Lord, we just want to lay ourselves down at your feet, Lord. And I just want to ask that you would just have your words, that it would be not me, but you, Lord, that would speak to us through your word, and uh, that you would just conform us a little bit more into the image of your son uh, through the reading of your scripture and the studying of your word, and we just lay this time aside for you, and we thank you for everything you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Samuel, uh, we see that God's kingdom is the ultimate kingdom, as we've said all along the last couple of chapters. In chapters 1 through 3, we see that Samuel is raised up um, to the heartbreak of his mother, uh, in response to the heartbreak of his mother, Hannah, uh, when, when she was being treated harshly, and that God speaks to Samuel. Uh, he became known as a spokesman for God during this time. But we see, although God called Samuel in chapter 3, he's actually not mentioned between chapters 4, verse 1, and uh, chapter 7, verse 3. So there's about three chapters in about seven months' time while this ark is up in the Philistines' territory. And in chapter 4, last week, we saw that those bad actors within the camp of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas specifically, who tried using God for their own personal objectives, failed miserably. They took the ark of God, the most holy instrument of God, and they lost the battle. And not only that, but the ark was taken by their enemy as a war trophy. And so it's pretty much a bad situation that we come into as we go into chapter 5. It seems like God lost the battle. But we often know that what seems a certain way at first often turns out different in the end, right? Uh, this story is no different. And spoiler alert, God wins. I know because I read the end of the book. <laughs> and I know you guys have too. But in chapter 5, we're going to get into seeing that the Philistines attempted to use God as a war trophy. And that they're going to regret this decision. And they will rid the ark. Uh, they will get rid of the ark kind of like a hot potato. And in chapter 6, the story continues as the ark divinely goes back to Israel. But the men of Israel will make some very costly mistakes in which we'll see in the importance of reverence. Uh, we're going to learn these things in these chapters. God will still accomplish his will, even with bad people getting involved. Something worth paying attention to in chapter 5 is the escalation of the Philistines' behavior with God's responses. And a question worth considering as we study tonight is can you truly get rid of God? You know, the Philistines tried to get rid of God. I'm going to answer that question with a question, which is, can you get rid of gravity? And I would say probably not. 
Um, God has a differing effect on those who are against him versus those who are for him. And it reminds me of this passage here. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Just showing us that the enemy doesn't want God to be around. They want to get rid of him. That's what we see in the Philistines. But those who are of God want God to be in their camp. And we're going to see that with Israel. And so we're going to start with uh, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5. If you guys just want to follow along with me. Starting with verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God... They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its, on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And so they basically, the Philistines, they won this battle, and they took the Ark of God and they brought him into the temple of their god, with a lowercase g, and the god named Dagon. And the, the, very fir- uh, the morning after they placed the ark in there, the statue is down, face down, and then they set it back up, and then the next morning uh, they come back, and the statue's face down, and the head and the hands are broken. And so in this passage here that we just finished up, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people. So we see here that... Um, you know, God is doing the work. He doesn't even need the people in this case. He's doing the work without the people. And God, the way that he treats the Philistines is we're going to see an escalation of force here where it starts off a little smaller and then a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger after that due to their, um, they're not cooperating with, with the Lord of Israel. And um, even though that he proves that he is a superior God than the false god Dagon. So uh, what is Dagon, you might ask? Um, It's a fish god. A man's upper body with a fish tail, said to be the father of Baal. In the Old Testament, we see Dagon, Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, and others. Um, They were a god with a lowercase g, uh, a man-made idol. They were the created. They were not God, the creator, right? There's a difference. Dagon was the god that the Philistines would have attributed their victory over Israel. So what does the Bible say about our man-made created idols? The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So whenever I get to a passage where it's uh, really quick and easy to just 
be like, you can kind of see the bad guy. I have a tendency as a Christian to just be like, oh, yeah, I got you. You're a bad guy. So I would say to you, are you feeling judgy, Christian? Are you saying, yeah, get them. Go after those heathen Philistines and their false gods. Before you jump to that reaction, I would, I would caution you and just say, don't forget in the last chapter the supposed good guys. They made the ark, which was, uh, they took the ark, uh, which was their made man-made idol. It was a superstition rabbit's foot for them to try to win this battle. And it, they didn't believe in the God of the ark. It was about the ark itself, but not the God of the ark. So just avoid the temptation or the tendency uh, to think that just because you're a Christian that you're always right and that whoever is against you is always wrong. Sometimes, Christian, we are in the wrong too, right? Don't elevate the church or a pastor as your idol. It's just a means to an end and assuming that the Lord is in it in the first place. Don't elevate your job, your prosperity, your health as your idol. Instead, see them as blessings that God has provided you to use in your walk with him. And don't elevate your fill-in-the-blank situation. Instead, use it, whatever it is, and submit it to him. Uh, use it in your walk with him. We're going to see, um, we're going to see three things where there's a Dagon bows to God, then there's a big blow, Dagon is destroyed, and then thirdly, God changes uh, from his focus against Dagon after he destroyed Dagon and he turns to the people. So in verse three, we see Dagon bows. It says here, there is Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Dagon was quite possibly considered the reason for Philistines' success with Israel. I find it interesting that the only life, because Dagon is a lifeless creature, that Dagon ever had was when Yahweh gave it life for two moments. The moment, the first time to bow down to him and the second time to destroy him. <laughs> I just find that's interesting because it's a man-made lifeless statue. And then in verse 4, we see that Dagon is destroyed. It says here, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. And so now twice, and now destroyed, just for good measure, I guess. Um, was God just messing around with them the first time? Was God not capable of destroying them the first time? Why didn't he just destroy Dagon right off? Maybe our God is the God of second chances. Maybe third chances. Maybe fourth or fifth or umpteenth chances. We don't know how many chances we will get. We know that he is long-suffering, but we should not try his patience. In this case, he gave them a second chance, and a third we will see. Here's a few questions I think that we can consider as we move on. Uh, why didn't God or Yahweh destroy the Philistines, God, Dagon, right away? Why didn't God destroy the Philistines right away? Why didn't God destroy all of our enemies right away? Why hasn't God destroyed your enemies yet? Or has he at the cross? Yeah. Yes. Do you want God to smite your enemies once and for all? Here's some practical advice. It's not just theological advice. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let the Lord take on your enemies in his timing, in his way that he chooses. That's the best way. 
And so after Dagon is destroyed, we see that there's a plague, and it's a plague of tumors. We see that God gets personal with the people. And this plague, it was likely a form of the bubonic plague and spread by the rats. So we'll, we'll see later on that there's a, um, they make an offering of rats and tumors. Okay, kind of weird, okay. But um, that's what they did. And it had to do with, more than likely, the rats were what spread the disease out. And the people got tumors. And uh, don't kill the messenger. But uh, the scholars say that the tumors could have been in the form of hemorrhoids. So there you go. Good, good visual for you guys. Um, so God ups the ante here, and he takes it from impersonal, attacking a false god, to personal. He attacks the people themselves. And I would say, in some ways, uh, there's a similarity in sin, is that, you know, when we get into sin, it can be like a ratchet, where it's like a one-way. You know, you get in a little bit deeper, and you're stuck, and then there might be some time that goes by, and then you get in a little bit deeper, and then you're stuck more, and then, and then again... And then it gets worse and worse. And so we kind of see that with the Philistines here where it's almost like uh, a ratcheting thing that just gets worse and worse. And the word seems to describe many are also killed in Philistine in verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to read that passage real quick. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And so, you know, death uh, is, is something that God uses here. But we can all relate to death because kind of like they say, you know, the statistics show that 10 out of 10 people die, right? Or as they like to say, only two things in life are guaranteed, taxes and death. Um, we should seek God before our time has come, okay? We don't know when that time is going to come, but we should definitely seek God out before that time has come because... This life is but a vapor, and we only have a limited amount of time on this earth to, to um, fulfill the will that God has given us. And so we want to take our life um, seriously, and, and we want to serve God with that life that we've been given. Uh, I want to make another small point. How strange is it that this battle 3,000 years ago between Israel and, and, and Philistines applies to us? And, and I guess what I mean by that is, is the whole Bible is applicable to us. It says in Second uh, Timothy that all scripture is profitable for doctrine. So even all the way back in this war 3,000 years ago, that seems kind of silly where there's this ark getting stolen back and forth, almost like a capture of the flag. Um, we've got some stuff that we can learn from this. And so one thing is, I would say, is how does God treat our enemies? So who is our enemy? Well, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our enemy. If you want to define our enemy, that's our enemy. Now, as they say, 
you know, hate the sinner, not hate the sin, not the sinner, right? <laughs> um, Satan and the rest of the fall, fallen angels are currently working on borrowed time, but that will also come to an end. There's a passage here I'll share with you guys. This is where Jesus is casting out a demon in the book of Matthew. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we done with you, Jesus? What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So that would maybe indicate that there's a time. So what would that time be? Here it says in the book of Revelation, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So here we see that Satan is cast in a pit for a thousand years. And Jesus has the freedom uh, to be able to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years unhindered by the evil that Satan brings down on, on the earth. And it's going to be, in a way, kind of like, uh, like a return to the state of the Garden of Eden before there was sin. He's going to show us what a true king over the earth should look like. But after a thousand years, if you picked up on it in that last passage there, after a thousand years, Satan uh, is over. After a thousand years, um, there's going to be one last little battle. And this is how it's going to go. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God and out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and so satan is living on borrowed time and even when he comes back for that last battle before the battle even starts jesus takes him out and so you know it would be tempting for us to look at other human beings as our enemy sometimes especially when we see things happen or, or things that might happen that might offend us we want to go after the person. But just remember that there's something behind that. And so it's that thing. It's the spiritual host of wickedness that we need to. Um, that's where our focus needs to be. And the only person that can handle that business is God. God will handle his business himself. And it's not just something that has happened in the past, but also in the future. And just two little passages I'll share here. Uh, one from Ezekiel 38. And say... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And then again in verse 16, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so the nations will know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And um, this is re referencing the battle of um, Gog and Magog, the coalition from the north when they come down in Israel at a future time. And I bring that one up because 
I know for myself, I was talking with somebody just the other day, that there was even a time where, in, in my past, where, you know, I was reading the Bible through a different lens. And one of the things that I thought about was, well, the United States of America is pretty tough. We've got a big military, and God's going to use us to just smite the enemy, you know. And if that means that somebody's going to come against Israel, and he uses us, and maybe we'll even get to take part in that, and, and, and God's... And the whole thing is, is it was centered on, on us. It was centered on me. And I, and I was thinking that at the time, God's going to use us to do his great work. But the truth is, is that God does his great work. Sometimes he might decide to use us in a small way, but it's God's great work. It's not us. It's his hand. And so we see that uh, through Ezekiel 38 and 39. I would encourage you to read, read it with that in mind. Uh, see where everywhere in, in those two chapters where he, t he talks about him being his hand and him controlling that battle himself. And then one last one is, is in the tribulation period. So I've got a reference for that too. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so Jesus will handle his He's going to handle his business. Now, the enemy is spiritual, and we need to remember that as Christians, that the enemy is spiritual. We need to understand that it's not flesh and blood. And you should let God fight the enemy on your behalf. You're no match for Satan. When I was a kid and I was younger, uh, as a younger Christian, I used to think to myself, as a younger guy, when I see Satan, I'm just going to punch him right in the face, right? Like, that's going to take them out. And the thing is, is as a kid, as a kid, I think that I actually believed that for a little while. Like, it would actually do something. And then you grow up, and then you start getting punched in the face by Satan <laughs> repeatedly. And it's not fun. And then you start realizing, okay, I'm going to tap out. I need the Lord. I need him. He's going to win this battle, not me. But I just say that because don't deceive yourself to thinking that you can be a match against him. He's much more powerful than you. But you can win. You're just going to have to win by uh, being on God's side. And if you're on God's side, then guess what? He's on your side, and he'll handle your battles for you. Let's continue and just follow along in verses 7 through 12, chapter 5. We already read some of these, but here we go. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon, our God, Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was, they carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they set the ark of God of the God to Ekron, so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our own people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And I know we had already kind of read some of those verses, but I just wanted to finish reading that passage there. Just to 
show us how the Philistines treated God. They treated him like a hot potato. They brought him in as a war trophy, and they tried to, you know, I suppose they tried to do what was only probably natural to them, which is to put it in, in their temple and, and try to show, oh, look at, what get, look at what Dagon was able to earn us. We got this war trophy here. But they realized it wasn't working out too well for them. Uh, he destroyed their god, their, their idol, and then he also started coming after them with these tumors. What they didn't do was, hey, let's worship the God that's superior to ours. That's what they could have done. They could have decided, oh, wow, this God, Dagon, we thought that he was the real deal. But no, we now see that this other God, the God of the Israelites, is the real deal. That's not what they did. Instead, they said, let's get rid of this. Well, how well does it work to get rid of God? You, you really, you can't. You can't get rid of God. But they tried. And so the Philistines, they took it from, they took the ark from Ashdod to Gath in verses 7 and 8. And there's a very great destruction in tumors. And so they moved the, what was their enemy, which was the God of Israel, the truth, from one location to another. But that's kind of like this, there, there's a little thing that I've seen happen in the Marines before that I just wanted to share with you guys because I think it might be appropriate here. There's times where I've come across Marines, and by the way, like 90% of Marines smoke cigarettes, or they do some kind of tobacco of some sort. And so a lot of times you'll come across somebody, and they pride themselves on, oh, I'm going to quit smoking. But they quit smoking because they take up dipping, smokeless tobacco. And I always just thought that that was kind of interesting because you're really just trading out one habit for another habit, and it's the exact same. You're still getting the same cancer. Um, it's just a different way. And it also reminds me of the game Whack-A-Mole. You guys know about that one. You know, when you bonk one to only endlessly have another one pop up in another spot. Have you ever played spiritual Whack-A-Mole? You know, sometimes people who can never seem to get settled, um, they'll go from lust to alcohol to secular psychology to jealousy to another marriage to another marriage. Again, just looking for happiness maybe to another church. They're always church hopping. They're always seeking. They're always scratching at an itch that never really resolves. And they sometimes people will take that all the way to the grave. And I'd say without Jesus, without pouring out his love, his agape love, without being others-focused, we become self-focused. And being self-focused results in a game of spiritual whack-a-mole. You're kind of like that Marine who quit smoking to just start dipping. With Jesus being God-focused and others-focused, you will find a settling within your spirit that cannot be described, only experienced. And that's the one I would recommend. The Philistines then moved the ark from Gath to Ekron in verse 10. Here we go again. They're playing spiritual whack-a-mole. It's just continuing. They just move it from one spot to another to another. And what they, start, what they come to realize is, is this problem is not going away. When they move it from one town to another, um, it just continues, and it continues to get worse. The Ekronites cried out. They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. They knew that they were guilty. The people just wanted it to stop. Their reaction to get rid of the true God may stop their problems temporarily, but even though it would stop their problems temporarily, as we'll see, they still do have to eventually face the God at the judgment. Or they have to face God at the judgment. You can't escape that one. The lords of the Philistines got involved. 
And they said to send away the ark and to let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. They finally decided what to do after seven months. And in verse 6, 1, um, we see the number seven, seven months. And, and in the Bible, seven generally indicates the number of completeness throughout the Bible. I would say in this case, they were completely defeated before God. They tried everything for seven months. And after trying everything to keep their war trophy, it wasn't working out. And they needed to get rid of it. But here's the other thing. Here's the other side of it. God did have mercy on them. He could have just killed them all, but he didn't. The men who did not die and were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It, that, that last part here, it shows that there was people that were left, you know, they were troubled. They were stricken with tumors and they cried out. But God could have killed them and he decided not to. So God is long-suffering, even towards those who don't believe in him. And so we're going to continue along. We're going to jump right into chapter 6 and just continue along. We're going to go through verses um, 1 through 9. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then he said, Then they said, What is the trespass offering that we should return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your hand. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, and sent Send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Now, God is in control. The Philistines here, what we just read, they devised their plan. The diviners, um, think of these prominent non-godly spiritual leaders. What these guys did is they just they just came up with the best plan that they could and they set up a scheme that was basically they stacked the cards against God and and they did it because I think that they were looking for if this God is really real like he's going to be able to do the impossible and that's how they're going to send this thing out of there in verse 6 I'll point out that even they had some understanding of God if you look in verse 6 it says here why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts these guys, they had an understanding of the hardening of hearts that happened in the Exodus um, as Moses was taking the people out of, out of Egypt. And they understood that. And I think that even those who are non-believers understand the truth to a degree. And they suppress it, just as it says here in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even in his eternal power in the Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Anyone who is against God ha has primarily a heart problem, not a head problem. It's not an intellectual problem. All right, we're going to read on through verses 10 through 19. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and walked along the high, went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows to a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the five golden tumors which the Philistines returned as trespassed offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they sent the ark, they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua Av. Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And so here we see that they set up, the, as I mentioned earlier, they set the deck against the Lord. They set up two milking cows, and these cows had calves that they would have naturally wanted to go milk and so it would have to go against their instinct to go away these two cows away from their calves their weaning calves these calves had never been yoked these cows had never been yoked before in verse 7 untrained with yokes it would be impossible for these cows to just hitch up and learn on the fly and then the last thing is is that there is no guidance system nobody was taking these cows nobody was aiming the cows they didn't have a gps system and so to me you know when you see this I think to myself, are you kidding me? Like, how unfair is this? And I get appalled sometimes about how my enemies treat God. They don't even give him a chance. But he rises above our stupid games that we play with him. He should smite us, but through his graciousness, he'll play our game sometimes for a little while. Um, it burns me up personally whenever I hear the Lord's name used in vain. Um, but God will play their game for a little while, and hopefully those people will come around and they'll see that God is the true God. The Lord does do the impossible here. He removes all doubt that he was superior the entire time and further cementing him as the king. But 
even though God did the impossible and he took these cows that were milking, these cows that had never been yoked before and these cows that had no guidance system, and they walked straight across the border to Israel, you would think that, oh, great, so the story ends happily ever after. But the Israelites messed it up bad right away for their lack of reverence and curiosity. They did not follow the strict guidelines regarding the treatment of the ark. And we find some of those in Exodus 25, 26, and 37. Um, I was a Boy Scout when I was younger, and I remember one time I heard the laws, and here you go. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And the last one is reverent. And by the way, I don't condone the Boy Scouts, uh, uh, especially how I've seen them go uh, along with the progressive agenda. And they've definitely changed a lot. But there was one point in time where character was pretty important to them. And reverence was important to them along with that character. And, and I would even say our society at one point embraced reverence. And that was a good thing. I stole a quote from Guzik in, in regards to this. And this is what it says. The Ark of the Covenant was only to be touched and handled by specific Levites from the family of Kohath. And even they were commanded not to touch the Ark itself. Numbers 4.15. But the men of Beth Shemesh sinned not only by touching the ark, but also looking into it inappropriately. Here's the verse that he quoted. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of the meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then the rest of the quote here, we again notice that God dealt with the Israelites more strictly than he dealt with the Philistines, who just transported the ark by a cart. God did this because the Israelites, who had his law, should have and did no better. It is sad to consider that the Philistines showed more honor to the holiness of God than the Israelites. And we should be careful that that's not us. You know, we're in Calvary Chapel and I would say this is a, what, what I call a low church environment. You've got high church where you've got to wear a business suit and you've got to be, you know, your Sunday's best and all that. And everything, it, it tends to be a little bit more ritualistic. And, and I think it's for good purpose. I think that the purpose is that they want to have a high reverence for God. And I think that in Calvary Chapel, we just need to make sure that we don't make any mistake, that our casual dress or our casual environment doesn't mean that we're casual with God. We need to approach the Lord with sincerity and with respect. So our reverence doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to make it rigid, you know, how we come to the Lord. And we should be able to come to the Lord lightly as well. And there's a book called Through the Tabernacle, Praying Through the Tabernacle with John Corson. And I, and I just took a little quote out of that where he talks about why we can approach Lord, uh, the Lord in a light manner. And here it is. Now the courtyard was fenced in by a linen curtain. This is talking about the tabernacle, had a linen curtain. According to Ezekiel 44, linen was also the material of the priest's garments. Why? Because the Lord said that the priests were to wear nothing of wool, nothing that caused them to sweat. I like that. There's not to be sweat in the ministry or service. Anything that we do in serving the Lord should be enjoyable and cool. If it's burdensome, obligatory, or heavy, if it causes you to perspire and worry, then it's not what you're called to do. My burden is easy and my load is light, Jesus said. That not only relates to the ministry, but also coming into the presence of God. God was not saying, figure out how to get in, work hard, struggle, and maybe I'll give you an audience. No. In making a fence of linen, 
it was as though God was saying, I am making it easy as possible for you to come into my presence. And I think that that's why Calvary Chapel kind of is the way that it is, because we want to approach God in a way that is, we have a high view of God, but we can approach him in a very light way. And I like that. Let us have a renewed reverence toward God, toward the life and the blood that Jesus gave for us for the remission of sins and for his goodness. And finally, the last couple of verses, we're going to read about the restoration of the ark. We're going to read into uh, from 620 to 71 here. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants, inhabitants of Kiriath, Jerem saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath Jerem said, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer the son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so here we see there's a restoration of the ark. So the ark took a trip for seven months. It was a war trophy. It didn't work out too good for the Philistines, and God brought it back. And again, I just want to point out that no man. Uh, no man was there making this happen all along. It was God that made this happen himself. The Israelites got right with God, and God allowed them to restore the ark to the people in Kiriath-Jerim at Ab Abinadab's house with Eliezer consecrated to keep the ark. And just as Jesus gave Peter a second chance after Peter denied him three times when he went to the cross and became crucified, just as God in this story gave the Israelites a second chance with the ark of God, he gives you and I a second chance to be made right with him as well. And the last verse I want to share with you guys is, if we, were faith, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so the Lord is always faithful, amen? In closing, one man's junk was another man's treasure. To the Philistines, the ark needed to be ridded away with because it brought death, destruction, and trouble. But to Israel, the ark represents the one true God. We are thankful that we get to experience the same God of salvation who had rescued them from the bondage of Israel, the same God of power who brought on the ten plagues against Pharaoh and split the Red Sea, and the same God of hope who brought them through the desert for 40 years and ultimately into the promised land. And he's the same God who gave the Israelites second chances, who also give us second chances. I'm thankful that the Lord gave me a second chance. And by the way, it was a lot more than second chances for me. I'm thankful that I get to be here with God's people and serve. We'll close in a time of corporate prayer, as we normally do on Wednesday nights. Lift up your prayers boldly before the throne, loud enough for your brothers and sisters to hear and agree. God will grant our prayers when we agree, as it says, again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Please pray for our church to continue to be used mightily by the hand of God. Pray for God to protect us from spiritual warfare during a fragile time in our church right now. And also, also that Satan, you know that Satan would love to sink his teeth into the flock right now. And pray for the elders to seek the Lord during a pivotal time when they're determining the future pastorship of our church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and for being so faithful to us. Thankful, We are thankful for the yearly reminder that we've had Monday when we were able to focus as a culture on your son Jesus at Christmas, whom you speak of when you say his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
we turn this time of prayer over to you, Lord, and ask for you to hear our